And so, Father, we confess that we've been looking in the mirror and kind of observing that we're getting dusty, getting old. May we've been looking at Fox News. May we've been looking at CNN. Maybe we've been looking at ESPN and the Denver Broncos. Father, I pray that as we preach, you, through the power of your Spirit, would, you would uh, reach down and turn our faces towards you so that we would see you on your throne, revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. I'm, I'm just asking that you'd help us to preach, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. We started preaching through the Revelation uh, one year ago today. Uh, today, we arrive at Revelation chapter 17, which is an explanation of what John has seen since the opening of the seventh seal. Remember, on the seven-sealed scroll. It's absolutely critical to remember that John is no longer dwelling on earth. The book starts on earth with uh, John uh, worshiping in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, when and where Jesus appears like a man on fire shining like the sun. Jesus then dictates seven letters to the seven angels of the seven churches in Asia Minor. Each letter is a call to conquer and creates this question, how do, I, how do I conquer? Then Jesus says to John, come up here. And suddenly John finds himself before the throne of God. He's no longer in space and time as we experience them, and, and, and yet he's looking at space and time as we do experience them. In the strong right hand of God, there is this scroll sealed with seven seals, 24 elders around the throne in all of heaven. Uh, they worship God, for by his will he created all things. We saw that the scroll appears to be all of creation. In Scripture, you know, seven days are far more than seven days as we measure time. In fact, they represent all of chronos or chronological time. So this picture reminds us of this timeline. Remember this timeline? In the words of Karl Barth, to say that God is eternal means that God is the one who is and rules before time, in time, and again after time. The one who is not conditioned by time, but conditions it absolutely in his freedom. In the words of the famous hymn, he's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got space-time in his hands. Okay, got the picture? Now, we've spoken about all of this, so I'm just reminding you that John is outside space-time. Looking at space-time in the strong right hand of God, who is Jesus. In Isaiah, you find that Jesus is the arm of the Lord. He, he's the Word. He's the judgment. He's the slaughtered lamb who is opening the scroll and revealing its meaning. And all of this reveals something utterly fascinating about John. Don't know if you've thought of this. It reveals something fascinating about John, and it reveals something fascinating about you, and it reveals something utterly fascinating about Jesus. There are at least two Johns. There's a John outside the scroll, and there's a John inside the scroll. It appears that John is one of the 24 elders around the throne constantly worshiping in eternity, and John is also a hot-headed fisherman in 30 AD in Galilee. He once called down fire on an entire Samaritan village. He's also a John in, in, that, in that scroll. Even more, John is an observer. You know, physicists talk a lot these days about the mystery of an observer, but John is an observer observing both the old John and the new John, the new and eternal John. It appears that Paul also had an experience like this. He tells the Corinthians that he was caught up into the third heaven, remember? And he saw things that he just didn't know quite what to do with. He must have seen an old Paul and a forever new and eternal Paul. 
And not only that, there's an old you and a new and eternal you. John hears every creature, listen, he hears every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is within them, uh, praising uh, God and the Lamb on the throne for redeeming people for God. In other words, he hears you, right? Because you're a creature, right? He, he hears every creature. He, he hears you, the new and eternal you, constantly singing in eternity. But there is an old you grumbling and complaining in 2018 somewhere in Denver, right? The new and eternal you must be a little bit like the you that is awake thinking about the you that is dreaming. Think about it. You are you when you're dreaming. And yet you're not you. You're not your true self. You're a false self that you have created with your dream. St. Paul wrote, therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He will give you light, Ephesians 5, 14. You remember when Christ appeared to John, he fell as if dead until Jesus touched him and said, Don't be afraid. It was as if John was waking from a dream of his own sovereignty, his own control, to the reality of God's sovereignty and God's control. You'll also remember that once upon a time, John was in a boat with Jesus on the sea. A storm was raging, but Jesus was asleep down at the bottom of the boat. He appeared to be dreaming. So the disciples woke Jesus to the reality of the storm. Jesus seemed to be kind of perturbed, and then he stopped the storm. And it did stop, and then they wake up to the reality that the storm was not really reality, but more like their own bad dream interfering with God's dream, who was asleep in the boat. Kind of crazy. Well, creation is God's dream, created entirely by his will or his word, but this is where it gets really weird. God has dreamed up some dreamers <laughs> that don't always dream what he's dreaming, what God dreams. The John outside the scroll is God's perfect dream, man in the image of God. But the John inside the scroll is still dreaming his own dreams. And yet even those dreams must somehow be part of God's dream. God's dreams are called reality. When John dreams God's dreams, he walks in the way, the truth, and the light. life. He, he walks in the light. All that is exposed to light becomes light, writes Paul. He walks in the light. But whenever and wherever John simply dreams his own dreams, he sins. Well, John hears all creatures in eternity worshiping, but in eternity there is no sin, no beast, no harlot, no dragon, no evil. No one interested in crucifying God. Only interested in worshiping God. You see, sin and evil are not God's dream, but our dream, our nightmare. I can't say this precisely, but John must realize that he exists in the scroll the way you exist in your dreams. You exist, and some of the things you dream exist, right? Think about your dreams. You exist, and some of the things you dream exist, but that dream world really doesn't exist. And yet sometimes we get trapped in our dreams. And now this is where the revelation should really, really, really blow your mind. John looks to the throne and realizes that God has entered not only his own dreams, the creation, God has not only entered his own dreams, but also John's dreams of sin and evil. Because he looks to the throne, and on the throne he sees wounds. 
on the body of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The King of Kings received those wounds in our wicked dreams, and yet those wicked dreams exist in God's good dream, which is eternal. Those wounds purchased in time are also an eternal fountain of eternal life from which pours a, a river of life. This is crazy. But I just wanted to remind you of what we preached a year ago. And that is that the revelation is something like God entering our dreams and waking us from our illusion of control. See, that would be apocalyptic. I mean, our entire world, the earth would shake, the mountains would vanish, and our reality would dissolve like a dream. Dreams, they feel real while we're in them, right? It's only when we wake up that we realize something was actually strange. Let me ask you a question. You, you never really remember the beginning of a dream, do you? You always wind up right in the middle of what's going on. I guess, yeah. So how did we end up here? Well, we just came from the, uh... Think about it, Ariadne. How did you get here? Where are you right now? We're dreaming. You're actually in the middle of the workshop right now, sleeping. This is your first lesson in shared dreaming. Stay calm. full of glass hurts like hell when you're in it, it feels real think about it how did you get here i mean that's what we all wonder right i see maybe in some sense we're dreaming remember that clip we watched it a year ago from the movie inception about people that developed this technology to enter other people's people's dreams when you're in it it feels real well the wounds on christ's hands and feet are real maybe they're the price god pays to enter our nightmare and wake us up. Well, we cannot understand all of that, but I think we should be pondering all of that as we read Revelation chapter 17. Last time in Revelation 16, at the revelation of the seventh wound poured from the seventh bowl of the passion, the thumos of God, we saw that all of the kings of the earth and all of their armies, remember, they gathered together on a mountain where they made war against the Lamb of God. He conquers them as he cries, it is finished, it is done, from, from this tree in a garden uh, on the outside of the walls of the great city of Jerusalem, the earth shakes, the mountains vanish, and our old reality dissolves like a dream. Then chapter 17, verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great Porne, the harlot, the whore, who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed Porneu, sexual immorality, thus to buy or sell intimate communion, and with the wine of whose porneia the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. It's scarlet, just like the seven-headed dragon was scarlet. Scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. Now most uh, think that this beast with the blasphemous names is the Antichrist. And that makes uh, perfect sense to me. Antichrist means imitation Christ. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. In three chapters, we'll meet the bride. And she is not adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She is made of gold and jewels and pearls. But this woman was adorned in gold, jewels, and pearls, writes John, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations, that is, the impurities of her porneia, her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Bedeligma is abomination. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. 
But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth... This is a good question. We've been, do you dwell on earth? Is there somewhere else you could, you could also dwell? The dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet to come, and when he does come, he must remain only, only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven. It belongs to the seven. The beast is a, a king, like a, a king of kings. Remember, Jesus rose on the eighth day, which in the Hebrew mind is an endless seventh day. The beast is like an imitation Christ. The kings are, but the beast is not. Verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, as if the seven give it power. And it goes to destruction. And the ten horns uh, that you saw, and you have ten fingers, that's kind of how we count in this world, the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, The waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages, and the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast, will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and eat her flesh and burn her with fire. The dragon's kingdom consumes itself. Burn her with fire, for God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled, uh, finished. And, and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. There you go. Now, we're going to preach more about this, and we have been preaching about this really for months, but we still got to wonder, who's this woman? What's this city? Well, she's Babylon. That's obvious because it's her name. It's written on her, on her head, and it reminds us of the Tower of Babel when men and women tried to purchase heaven with their deeds. She's Babylon. And she must be Rome. By this time, and now for thousands of years, Rome has been known as a city built on seven hills. In Rome, they're slaughtering Christians for sport in the Colosseum. She's Babylon and Rome and Jerusalem. Jerusalem has already been labeled the great city in chapter 11. She's the city where our Lord was crucified, 11 verse 8. We'll soon read, In her is found the blood of the saints and the prophets, and all who have been slain on earth. That's got to be a reference to Jerusalem and the blood of Jesus who bleeds for, for all. Throughout the Old Testament, Jerusalem is called a harlot. Just read Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jer Jeremiah. The next chapter we read, her wound comes in one day. That must be the day that Jesus is crucified. Jerusalem is destroyed, and we'll soon see a new Jerusalem coming down in her place. No longer a harlot, but now a bride. Well, the harlot sits on the people's multitudes, nations, and languages. She's, she's very large, large woman. She's an economy of porneia. Wherever she goes, an economy of porneia. The kings of the earth use her, and she is dependent on the kings of the earth. Politicians depend upon the economy, and the economy is dependent upon Politicians, I think they use each other, and I think they hate each other, like beastly men and depraved harlots. She's female, and the beast is male. She rides the beast. If there's no beast, there's no harlot. Kind of like if there's no Adam, there's no Eve. Kind of like if there's no Jesus, there's no us, his bride. If the beast is the antichrist, the imitation Christ, she's the anti-bride the imitation bride. 
which is an evil entity that tempts humanity to purchase our Lord, who is love. So who or what is the beast? Preterists, remember we've talked about the preterists, they argue that the beast is obviously the Roman Empire. And they usually argue that the seven kings are seven emperors. It's got to be hugely significant that uh, the number of the beast, 666, adds up to the name Nero in two different ways. Nero was the fifth emperor of Rome, if you count Julius Caesar. We just read that four kings have fallen, and one is. Preterists often argue that the ten horns were ten provincial governors that would turn on the city of Rome, or that did, in fact, destroy Jerusalem. The predominant view for the last 600 years, primarily among Protestants, is that the papacy is the beast, and the popes are the kings. And some argue that the ten horns were kings or Gothic tribes that would, you remember, sack, sack Rome. The predominant view in Hollywood today and in America is that the beast has yet to appear, but will appear as the leader of a revived Roman Empire comprised of a seven, uh, ten-nation uh, European confederacy. Uh, a challenge to that view is that John clearly says that the fifth head on the beast is. That means that the fifth head, that king, is alive and kicking in John's day. Well, I think all of those views may be right to an extent. Seven is the number of our days in, in time. These are the kings of time. The beast is an evil entity that tempts humanity to take the life of our Lord. The whore is about manipulating the life and the love, and the beast is about taking the life and the love. The beast is political power that is especially lethal when combined with religious power. Some have argued that Obama is the Antichrist. And let me say, if you think he needs to save you, you just made him the Antichrist, the imitation Christ. According to NBC last week, in a closed-door meeting with a group of leading evangelical Christians, Donald Trump said this, this November 6th election is a referendum on not only me, it's a referendum on your religion. If your faith is dependent on Donald Trump, you don't have faith in Jesus. You have faith in the Antichrist, the imitation Christ. I'm not saying that Donald Trump is the Antichrist, but his statement sounds like the spirit of the Antichrist. You do not need Donald Trump to save Jesus or your religion. Religion that's pure and undefiled is this, visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. You don't need Donald Trump to save Jesus, and you don't need you to save Jesus, or yourself. If you think you save yourself, you're an imitation Christ. You're an antichrist. And you see, I think that's what's most frightening about the antichrist. Maybe you're the antichrist. Remember, I, I saw that in high school. I remember thinking, oh, what if I'm the Antichrist? And now I'm not just messing around with you. The Antichrist is the beast. In chapter 3, verse 3, we read that the whole earth marveled at the beast as they followed the beast. The whole earth. 13.8, all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Those whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. 13.14, through the false prophet, the beast convinces all. It doesn't have any exceptions. All to be marked by the beast, verse 16, and make an image of the beast to the beast. That's in verse 14. Sometimes I think I make myself in the image of the beast. Even though I'm trying, I'm striving desperately to make myself in the image of God. You ever experienced that? Beware when fighting the beast, lest you become the beast. Solomon wrote that God is testing us so that we would see that we ourselves are but beasts. 
was pretty easy to get stressed about the harlot and, and the beast, right? And so what do we do? We try to fight the beast and we get rather beastly. But right here in the middle of the chapter, the angel says something that we always seem to miss. Three times the angel says, the beast is not. The beast was and is not and is about to rise and go to destruction. Some argue that that refers to a myth regarding Nero, that Nero would die and rise from the dead, and yet it can't refer to King Nero if Nero is the fifth king, for that king is. Four have fallen and one is. The king is, but the beast was, is not, and is to come. Now John wrote that to everyone, including you. It's like the beast exists in your past, but your past only exists in your mind. It's the meaning that you ascribe to the events that you have experienced, but you know it's not truly real. The beast exists in your past and in your future, but your future isn't truly real. Your future is entirely a fiction that you have constructed in longing and in fear, a fiction derived from your interpretation of the past. The past is gone. The future is your fiction, but now is another matter. Now is the day of salvation. Uh, now is the judgment of this world, says Jesus in John 12. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. Tony Campolo writes, now is the non-existent point that separates past from the future. I can't describe now, because by the time I say now, it's already past. Nevertheless, I know that now exists because it is where I am. Philosophers, theologians, and now physicists, physicists all argue that now is the point at which eternity touches time, and time touches Eternity. All real life is encounter, wrote Martin Buber. I can only know and be known now in the present moment. You can only live now. You can only love now. You can only be free now. You can only commune with another person now. Eternal life is now. Well, Nero, the king is, but the beast is not. In chapter 24, we'll read that the kings of the earth bring their glory into the new Jerusalem, the eternal city. Amazing passage after everything we've read about the kings of the earth. But, but, we, but we don't read anything about that, like that about the dragon, the beast, and, and the whore. In fact, no one, quote, doing abomination, bedelegma, may enter. Well, three times John hears that the beast was, is not, and is to come. And three times John has already heard that the Lord is the one who is, <laughs> was, and is to come, or was, is, and is to come. You see, God is, I am. You know, in Scripture, there's this fundamental dualism that I think we, as the church, entirely misunderstand. On one hand, there is God, and on the other, evil. Uh, there is life, and on the other hand, death. There is light and dark, truth and lies, logos and chaos, Christ and antichrist, creator and desecrator or desolator, creation and the void. I am and I am not. We tend to think that the things in the second column are equal opposites of the things in the first column, but they're absolutely not. And I mean that quite literally. They are not. They are not equal opposites of the things in the first column, but descriptions of the absence of the things in the first column. Karl Barth wrote this, sin and evil have a kind of being which can only be described in purely negative terms. As for example, I should say sin and evil and the devil himself are impossible possibilities. Or if you prefer, unreal realities. It can't be helped. That's their nature. Because sin means living a lie. Sin is the impossible possibility in Scripture. It's a mystery. In fact, Scripture even says that. The mystery of, of, of how does it say it? Mystery of evil or disobedience or something like that. It's a, it's a mystery. And Paul writes this. God accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. 
So God speaks his word and creation happens until on the sixth day, someone else speaks and God's will doesn't seem to happen. In fact, God's word and will is crucified on a tree. Six hour of the day, sixth day of the week, sixth day of creation. It's like God dreams a dream that is you, and then you dream that there is no dreamer but you. In other words, you dream that you are not. Have you been dreaming that you are not? And what would that look like? John 15, Jesus says this. Listen closely. Abide in me. That's to be with him. Abide in me and I in you. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And now that's really weird because apart from him, we think we have done a whole lot of something like sin. But according to Jesus, that's not a thing. It's a no thing, a terrifying no thing, a terrifying nothing. It's a, it's a nightmare and yet still nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So to choose the things in, in that, that first column is the judgment, the choice, the judgment of God. The judgment of God is love and it is revealed as grace. To choose the things in the second column is our judgment apart from God's judgment. That's called sin. So we can add two words to our columns, grace and sin. There's a fundamental dualism in our world that isn't really a dualism. Because one side is and one side is not. There's a fundamental dualism in Scripture and a fundamental dualism in us in Scripture. There is a me that God creates with his judgment, and there is a me that I think I create with my judgment. There is a me that is God's dream. His name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life on the foundation of the world. There's a me that is God's dream, and there's also a me that is my own dream. He dwells on earth, and I'm proud of his name. <coughs> but he is not. There's a me made in God's image, and I don't know how to comprehend this, but that me is eternal. And there is a me that I think I made, and I don't know how to comprehend this, but that me is not. The me that God creates is who I am. And the me that I think I create is what I am not. <laughs> the man of sin is not. The man of grace is indestructible. Even if right now he may only seem to you about like, you know, the size of a mustard seed. You're going to watch him grow, observer. He's indestructible. I am the image of God. I am not the image of the beast. I'm light and not the shadow. Now these are old pictures that you've seen several times, like when we preached through Genesis, Ecclesiastes, Gospels, and Ephesians. I didn't redraw them because I'm lazy. I also didn't redraw them because I wanted you to believe that I didn't just make all this stuff up to explain the difficult chapter in Revelation uh, 17. In Ephesians and Colossians, Romans, Paul refers to them as the new man and the old man, the new Adam and the old Adam, the true self and the false self, the vessel of, of wrath, or the vessel of mercy and the vessel of wrath. In the synoptic gospels, they're the wheat and the tares, the grain and the chaff. In the gospel of John, they are the children of God and the spawn of Satan, the devil. In John 12, Jesus says this, that he will draw all people to himself. In John 8, he tells the Pharisees that they are of their father, the devil. Now, John knows that the devil cannot make people. He tells us that he is the father of what? Lies. He's the father of lies. And when we, the bride of Christ, believe the devil's lies, we receive his seed and we produce an abomination. Verse 5, we read that the harlot is the mother of earth's abominations, bedelgma, 
It's a fascinating word, Greek word, that only appears six times in Scripture. It's used here and in Revelation 20 where it says, no one doing abomination will enter the New Jerusalem. That's the eternal temple of God. Jesus uses it twice to refer to the abomination of desecration or desolation that's spoken of in Daniel and set up in the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem by, by the Antichrist. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus tells us what it is. To the Pharisees, he says this, you are those who justify yourselves. That means you, you judge yourselves and then you attempt to justify yourselves. You justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Understand? Your ego, which you exalt among men, is an abomination. And when it sits on the throne in the sanctuary of your soul, it is the abomination of desolation. For you think that you're a beast or a harlot, and you are not a man or a woman created in the image of God. You think that you must take life and earn love. You think you are a self-made man or a self-made woman, and yet with every choice you crucify the will of God, desecrate yourself, and trap yourself in outer darkness. But now, listen to the gospel. The beast is not. On the cross, Jesus, the will of God, word of God, descended into your nightmare, disarmed the principalities and powers, and revealed that the beast is not. And he is, I am. And death is not the end. The dragon is constantly lying to you, trying to convince you that you're a beast or a harlot. But when he accuses you, you can say, I know you are, but what am I? I know you are, but what am I? Or better yet, the beast is not, but what am I? Better yet, don't ask him, just tell him. The beast is not, but I am. I am called and chosen and faithful. Check out verse 14. They, the king, beast, harlot, they will make war on the lamb, all at the direction of the dragon. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. The lamb will conquer them because, not because he has some great strategy, he's got all the, because he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That's a title for God. The lamb is God. And God is, I am, that I am. The very manifestation of his presence. Uh, the the um, epiphaneo, that's how Paul says it in 2 Thessalonians, the epiphaneo of his parousia, the very manifestation of his presence utterly annihilates, I am not. Just as light annihilates the dark, truth destroys lies, the Christ destroys the antichrist. The lamb will conquer and those with him. You can only be with someone now. The Lord is always with you, but you are not always with him. Why? You're trapped in your past through shame or lost in your anxieties about the future because you have believed the lie that you must justify yourself. The lie that you must call yourself, choose yourself, or create faith within yourself. But you are called, chosen, and so faithful. The Gospel of John explains the revelation. Same guy wrote both, I, I believe. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son, says Jesus, and has given all things into his hands. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 6, 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Everyone that's anyone will be called. Drawn, called. You're here this morning because you have already been called. You couldn't even seek God unless God called you and chose you to seek him. John 15, 16, you did not choose me. I chose you. I chose you to choose me. The whole point of election is that you didn't choose God. 
God chose you. He chose to make you in His own image, the image of love. He chose to impart faith through grace. Your Father is love. You are called, chosen, and faithful, or you're nothing. And I don't think you're nothing because you're worried about the something. The truth is that in some mysterious way in space and time, according to Scripture, I think you're both something and nothing. But you cannot make your nothing into something with fear that you're nothing or by striving to be something which is only choosing more nothing. In other words, you can't save yourself. <laughs> You can only wake from the dream that you are salvation to the reality that God is salvation in a word, Jesus. You cannot create yourself. You can only wait to the reality that you have been created. You cannot create yourself. You can only accept yourself, your true self, by looking into the eyes of your Father and trusting His judgment. The beast is not. And you are called and chosen and faithful. You're my child. I created you, my beloved. 20 years ago on our family vacation to Disney World, my two oldest, John and Elizabeth, they, they asked me, actually they begged me to take them on this ride called the Alien Encounter. There were warning signs just all over the place. So John, who was nine at the time, he kept asking me, Daddy, 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 will, will I be okay? And Elizabeth, who was eight, kept lecturing John on courage, saying, look at me, John, I'm not afraid, I'm not worried, I'm not afraid, we're gonna be, I'm okay, just look at me, look at me, John. John wanted my judgment. Elizabeth trusted her own judgment because she had exalted herself. Alien Encounter was one of those animatronic rides where they feed you a story and lock you in a chair, you know? At one point, the man on the video screen explained that he was the chairman of Excess Industries and that currently he was on another planet on the other side of the galaxy. But now through this amazing new Excess uh, teleportation technology, he himself would be beamed through space and materialize in the giant tube at the center of the room. Pretty cool. And John and Elizabeth were, were, were doing just fine. When all at once, one of the technicians yelled, I, I've, locked, I, I've locked onto another planet, another planet in our transmission path. And then, what if it's not him? It's an alien! It's carnivorous! Then the teleportation tube is starting to break. Through smoke and flashing lights, you could suddenly see this huge dragon-like creature rising in the, in the Excess Industries teleportation module. I, I look at John. He looks at me. I smile. He's okay. I look at Elizabeth, and Elizabeth is not looking at me. She's looking at this giant plastic alien in the teleportation tube in the middle of the room, and then I realize, oh, crap! She's bought the lie. The technician yells, people of Earth, do not worry. As long as the force field beams are on, the alien cannot fly out. Just then the power fails. And a guy yells, it's out! Get the alien back in the tube before it eats someone! All at once you could feel alien breath on the back of your neck. You hear the sound of the beast, this beast eating someone right above you. You feel liquid drip on your arms and your head. The chair shakes and you cannot get out. And then Elizabeth started screaming, we have to get out of here right now, right now! I look over at Elizabeth and I see a face that I had never seen before. Absolute terror. I remember thinking she actually believes that the beast is the end of her. And terrified of the beast, she was turning into a beast, clawing at their strengths, by, you know, trying desperately to get out of her chair, and my heart just broke for her. I could have, if I, if, 
if, if I, w- I would have, if I, c- I could have, I, I would have taken my heart out of my chest and given it to her at that point. My heart from the bosom of the Father given to her, but I couldn't. I was locked in my chair, so I couldn't get out of my chair and get to her chair. So I looked at Elizabeth. I remember I looked at Elizabeth, and I, I just started screaming, Elizabeth! 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 Look at me! Look! Look at me! Elizabeth, look at me! Look at me! Look at me! It's not real! It's not real! It's not real! The beast is not real! Now, the puffs of air coming out of the tubes in the back of her seat were real. But the breath of the beast was a lie. The water dripping on her head and on her hands, it was real. But the idea that that was blood from the victims of the beast was a lie. The plastic in the tube that looked like a dragon was real, but the beast was an illusion, a bad dream, and an absolute lie. I screamed, it's not real, and I desperately wanted her to believe, I am real. I am the truth, and I am love, and I will always love you. Always. You know, the wounds in your hands and your feet are real. And the wounds in Jesus' hands and feet are real. They are the price he gladly pays to let you know his love is real. And he will always love you. The wounds are real. And the pain that you experience in this world is real. But the news that this is the end and you are nothing but a beast or a whore that belongs to the dragon is an absolute lie. It's the lie. You know, maybe your entire journey through this fallen world is like the 15 minutes that I spent with my kids on the alien counter ride at Disney World. Now you may be wondering why a good father would take his eight-year-old daughter on the alien encounter ride. (laughs) Well, maybe a good father would not. But God is a good father. And he put us in a garden with a talking snake and a tree of knowledge. Knowledge of what? Good and evil. Light and dark. Life and death. I am and I am not. To let Elizabeth think that she might be not, might be swallowed by evil, was not my intention. But the way she freely chose to be with me, the way she freely chose to be with me after the ride was over, well, it was, it was just delightful. See, Elizabeth, <laughs> I could spend all week talking about stories of Elizabeth. Elizabeth was not is now, but was really our strong-willed child. Elizabeth sat on my lap on a bench at the exit of that ride for a full half hour just hanging onto my neck while John waited. (laughs) She just would not let go. She just wanted to be with me. A year later, she wrote this, this poem for me. Dad's. Dads that are always there for you. Dads that will kiss you before bed. Dads that teach you how to be brave. Dads that will be there to go on the big rides. Dads that are there when you come home from school saying, Daddy, the bully beat me up, and he says, I love you, Elizabeth. Dads. If they were not here, the world would be blank. Dads. (laughs) You may have had a bad dad. But I'm just telling you this morning, your father is good. He's the good. And so on the night that we all betrayed him, he took bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body given to you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this is the covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, drink of it, all of you. Now look at me. You looking at me? The beast is not. 
But you are called and chosen and faithful. Amen. Amen. You know, you just sang, All thy works shall praise thy name. In fact, you may have been singing that all your life. You didn't realize what you're singing. It's kind of everything I've gotten in trouble for, but it's out of the revelation. All thy works shall praise thy name. And sometimes poorly informed people and people, I think, with rather hard hearts, they will say something like this to me, and that is, well, if God ultimately saves everyone, what's the point of faith right now? What's the point of trusting Dad right now? They closed down the alien encounter right in 2003, and I read some things on it. I seriously think it's because some people were totally freaking out, and they were worried about heart attacks and people getting out of their restraints. I read about one woman that got out and freaked out in the middle of the room. And Anyway, I found on YouTube a home video that someone had taken on the alien encounter ride, and uh, just stay standing. It's real short, but I thought you might, might watch this and ask yourself the question, what difference does trusting Dad now really make. People of Earth, do not worry. As long as those beings are on, the alien cannot fly out. Because the alien's the one. Get it back in the tomb before we eat someone. Did you hear it? Some people believe the lie. You could kind of hear that little kid at the background just weeping. I mean, my heart like breaks when I hear that again. You know, sometimes I think the devil says to us something like, "Well, the Father loves you more than he loves less than he loves someone else." But I love Elizabeth and John the same. I really do. But when one believes the lie, my love towards them burns even brighter than it does uh, toward the other. And you see, the weird thing is God puts us all in different circumstances with different experiences. And so we can't really judge the experience of another, but, but you are constantly being lied to. Well, anyway, some people on that ride believe the lie. You could hear them weeping and screaming in terror. And some people on that ride did not believe the lie. And you could hear them laughing. You see, it might just make a difference if you believed the beast is not. And you are called and chosen and faithful. In Jesus' name, believe the gospel. Amen.